Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Podcast. I'm Scott Johnson from the Low Technology Institute, your host for podcast number 20 on March 24th, 2017, coming to you out of the Low Tech Recording Room in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's tax season, so I thought we'd spend some time giving ourselves an audit. But uh, don't panic, this is a fossil fuel and energy audit. No governmental agencies will be involved. We also have our weekly regular news roundup, institute updates, and our DIY feature. This week, we've got another great contribution from Matt Miles on the Scythe. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at low underscore techno, like us on Facebook, find us on Instagram, and check out our website, lowtechinstitute.org. There you can find both of our podcasts, our blog, and many other features. Last year I read a book called Ecological Design by, and I'm sorry I'm going to butcher these names, Sim Vanderin, that's V-A-N space D-E-R space R-Y-N, and Stuart Cohen, that's C-O-W-A-N. It originally came out in 1996, but it has been updated and republished since then. It has many good ideas, but the most useful for me was the systematic way it encourages readers to think about design and its relationships to its surroundings and world. One exercise that they encouraged was a design audit. This listed all the one-time and continual inputs that a building would need for construction, operation, maintenance, and destruction. And I'm going to use this idea, and I'm going to take this idea and use it for auditing our everyday lives to get an idea of our fossil fuel uses. Being aware of the pervasiveness of these fuels will help us find a way to remove them, or at least reduce their use, with an eye to eliminating them in the future. Now this isn't meant to make you feel guilty about your life. It is meant really just to help you put everything in perspective and create a plan for moving forward. I think this is useful for many of us who feel lost in a sea of best practices and suggestions on how to live in an ecologically friendly way, right? Uh, we read tons of articles about the most sustainable uh, eggplant or the uh, most eco-friendly toilet paper or what have you, right? And it's really hard to put all of that in perspective. And this is one way that we might be able to wrangle or guide our future practices. This is an interactive podcast, or at least it's one where you should follow along. So go and grab a piece of paper and a pencil. And I'm serious about the pencil bit because you'll certainly be erasing and rewriting a few things here and there. Go on. I'll, I'll wait. Um, and I'll even play a little music while you hunt for writing supplies. Okay, are you back? Paper? Pencil? Great. Now, uh, on your piece of paper, uh, turn it landscape, so it's wider than it is tall. And in the upper left-hand corner, write the words one-time inputs and underline them. About halfway down the left-hand side, write the word continual inputs and put in a line under them. On the right-hand side of the paper, uh, write the word uh, the words one-time outputs and underline it. And then about halfway down the right-hand side, write continual outputs and underline it. Now, uh, down the middle of the sheet, you can write things like feed, house, clothe, and transport. Um, those are four more categories. You can underline each one of those. So now, if you're looking at your piece of paper, you have uh, a central column of four items and then two columns on either side of the paper with two items each. Now, basically this is going to create a flowchart, and this isn't the only way to set it up, but it's, it's one, one way to set it up. 
you can look at, uh, we're going to be looking at fossil fuels first, uh, but you can use this to look at really anything. You can look at your carbon footprint this way. Uh, really, it's just a systematic way to look at the acquisition, the use, and the discard of a lot of products, items, and systems that we use in our everyday lives. So let's first take a typical household in the United States. If we look at one-time inputs up in the upper left-hand corner, we're going to write things like a car or a vehicle. Most every house has at least one car or vehicle, and that's more or less a one-time input, right? You're, you're not continually buying new cars every week. Uh, it's going to be a major purchase that lasts over a long time. Then obviously you're going to have a house or some sort of dwelling, whether it's an apartment building or a house or what have you. That's a one-time input uh, for the most part, right? You might tear down and rebuild or something like that, but for the most part a house could be considered a one-time input. Um, then you can think of other smaller scale things like appliances or bicycles or uh, refurbishment of your building, things like that. So large-scale sorts of long-term use things, things you use for years would go under this category. So take a minute, think about your house, what's in it, what's in your on your property, what sorts of possessions you have, um, things that are long-term, large-scale assets, right? Things that are going to be replaced by insurance if your house burns down, things like that that are kind of large ticket, long-term items. So take a minute, think about things, list them down here, right? Below that, in continual outputs, these are things that are constantly flowing into the house. In this analysis, we're using the house or the property as the basic unit. Um, and so these are things that are continually flowing in, like electricity, uh, perhaps natural gas, uh, gasoline. Even though you're not probably using gasoline in your house, you're using it for your vehicle very likely, and so that is going to be a continual input. Water, um, either through well or municipal sources, and then food that you buy. There are other inputs, of course, really anything you're going out on a fairly regular basis to buy and bring into your home, these are what are considered continual inputs. These are especially things that get used up, although in America it's pretty common to buy uh, things that are going to be kept. And I hate to use the word hoarded, but kept for a long time at our house, even if we're not using them anymore. Those can still be considered continual inputs if they're really not high value things and not meant to be used for a long time. Okay, and now I find it easier to jump over to the right side and talk about your outputs. Now you have to kind of put on your thinking cap and think not about things that you're bringing into your property or household, but things that you're sending out of it. And so one-time outputs at the top right, these are going to be things like, again, your car or vehicle, because eventually it's going to die. It's a machine and eventually will break down. And even though you can repair it and keep it going a long time, eventually you're going to have to dispose of sell or get rid of your vehicle. And then the house itself, right? If we're thinking full system, the house isn't going to be there forever. And so at some point it will be destroyed. And so that is an, a one-time output. We can think about other things, highly valuable things like jewelry often don't get, they're not really an output. They just get recycled, I suppose you could say, uh, but they're still an output, right? You're getting rid of it from your property. Um, and other large ticket items, you're going to replace your stove or your refrigerator or your other large appliances or major purchases over time as they wear out. And that's just really how our system is designed right now. 
it's very hard to get around the obligate consumer way of life because our entire system is built on the idea of an obligate consumer, which is, um, so an obligate consumer it comes out of, uh, I think the best example is farmers. Once upon a time, farmers were largely, when they were peasants, they were largely fairly self-sufficient. They grew and ate what they could for themselves, and then they had to pay tax or rent or whatever to their landlords if they had one. But for the most part, they grew and made pretty much everything they needed to survive. And they traded for some things. Certainly there were blacksmiths and uh, people making pottery and other things that they traded for. But for the most part, they could get by making and using the things for themselves. Once industrialization happened, people became what are called obligate consumers. We must buy, purchase, or otherwise get things to survive. We can't be self-sufficient anymore in the system that is currently set up. It's just not designed for self-sufficiency. It's designed for interdependency, which I'm not making a value judgment on that. There are certainly interdependencies in uh, peasant self-sufficient households as well, uh, often with family members or neighbors. They're interdependent on one another. However, uh, we have now gotten to the stage where everybody must buy things, and these things are created to wear out over time. Sometimes they are uh, purposefully created to wear out over time, like toasters that inexplicably die a few days or a few months after their warranty runs out, but other things are meant to last for a long time, but just the wear and tear of using them will wear them out, period. So, there are one-time outputs from your house, from your household. We should look at them and consider them carefully, but you shouldn't lose sleep over it necessarily unless you're knowingly going out and purposefully buying and replacing and using more than you need to at this moment. Okay, now farther down on the right, uh, we have continual outputs. These are things that every day, or at least every week, are going out of your house. So things like sewage, that's a pretty common uh, constant one. Flu gases, if you have a natural gas stove or a natural gas water heater or anything that runs on natural gas, you're going to have a flu and there are gases um, that go up from that. And to be fair, if you're burning, say, methane, uh, you're breaking that down into a less potent greenhouse gas rather than just letting uh, methane float into the environment. But on the other hand, we're also using natural gas that was otherwise sequestered in the Earth's surface. Uh, you also have exhaust from not only your car, uh, but again, um, you could consider flue gas as a type of exhaust. But there's certainly an exhaust coming out of your car. And then we have things like trash, which includes everything from packaging and unrecyclable materials to food waste, right? And these go out uh, probably once a week. Or when I lived in New Orleans, they went out twice a week. It was one of the only things that functioned really well in New Orleans when I lived there was the trash. Because if you didn't have your trash picked up twice a week, uh, you'd get flies because it was such a warm environment. And then, of course, we have recycling and you can, debate the you can debate the efficacy of recycling, uh, that it sometimes takes quite a lot of energy to recycle things. And of course, the answer to that is make little, as little waste as possible. But if you're going to make waste, make sure it's recyclable waste, I suppose would be the, the bottom line. But in the typical household, uh, we're sending trash and recycling out on a pretty constant basis. So now we're looking at a piece of paper with two... Uh, columns on the left and right hand side filled with all of these uh, different items the car the vehicle the house electrical gas water things like that on the one side and then the destruction of the car the vehicle the house um, sewage flue gases trash and recycling on the other 
Now between them, we have these categories of feed, house, clothe, and transport. And you might recognize these from one of the taglines we hear, use here at the Institute, um, that our mission is to help house, clothe, and feed ourselves in a post-fossil fuel world. Well, those are three of the primary things we need to get by. And I've added transportation here because it's kind of necessary to um, have some sort of transportation to feed house and clothe ourselves in an efficient way. So now what we can do is we can start drawing lines. We can, under transport, for example, we can write commuting to work. And many of us commute to work by car because, again, I don't want you to feel unnecessarily personally guilty about this, but our system is set up so that you are almost required to drive to work. You're lucky if you can uh, take the bus or the train or some other sort of reasonably priced public transportation, or even better if you can bicycle to work, but the vast majority of Americans have to drive to work. Interesting side note, um, when Dwight Eisenhower set up the interstate system, he modeled it on the Autobahn. Uh, the Autobahn, I can say from living in Germany, doesn't connect cities. It specifically avoids cities, and so it goes in the open space between cities. It's very fast because there's not daily traffic on most Autobahns. It's not used for commuting. The Autobahn is used for long-distance transportation, which was what the idea was. Now, when Dwight Eisenhower said, hey, we should have our own Autobahn equivalents and the, internet, uh, the interstate system was born, they turned that on its head and they connected major cities with interstates. Supposedly, Dwight Eisenhower was against this, but by that time, so much work had gone into it that it was kind of difficult to go back and start anew, and so they adopted it. And when they made the interstate system, it had an unintended consequence. People who lived in the city now said, hey, wait a minute, I don't have to live downtown to work downtown. I can move out in the suburbs and I can take this new high-speed highway every day into town. It's only 15 minutes by highway. Well, everybody who had the financial wherewithal uh, to move out of the city did it. Uh, this is often given the, uh, the term white flight and was a pretty part and parcel of our experience in St. Louis. People lived in the suburbs and then everybody thought, well, I'll just drive 15 minutes to work in every morning. But then everybody's doing it and it increases the commute time as maybe some of you are sitting in traffic right now on your way to work or on your way home from work. You can thank Dwight Eisenhower and the people who designed the interstate system for creating this suburban sprawl and reliance on the automobile to get to work and the traffic jams that have resulted. Anyway, interesting sidebar, mostly I say it to assuage your guilt about having to drive to work because that is how our system is set up and until you completely revamp your life or the system completely overhauls, it's going to be something we have to deal with. So, typical people, their, their commute to work, their commute to uh, buy groceries and other necessities uh, and wants, are going to be under your transport. Uh, then we have things like vacation, we have travel for all kinds of reasons. These can all go under transport and you can draw a line from your car or vehicle down to the different types of transport. And then you can draw another line from transport to exhaust and also car and vehicle, right? Because the waste of that transport is the vehicle itself and the exhaust. For the purposes of this exercise, we are looking at the house and other uh, in-place infrastructure as fait accompli. That is, they are already there existing, so we don't have to, although you could if you wanted to, talk about the transport of all the materials to build your house. 
uh, coming in and the different types of outputs if you wanted to go on a more granular level, but we're not going to do that just for the lack of time today. And then if we go down um, that center column and we look at, say, feeding ourselves, well, there we can draw a line, you know, we can talk about uh, the water we drink and the food we eat largely, right? And we can draw lines really simply from our continual inputs of water into the feed column, into the, the drinks column, and then back out into the sewage column, right? So we can see that uh, squiggly arrow going from water to drinking to sewage. Uh, we can do the same thing with our bought food. We can see that a line go from the word bought food to meals, and then we can see that line going out to trash and food waste and recycling, because it's not just the food that's coming in, but the packaging around that food. We can do the same thing for clothing. We can talk about the continual input or the one-time inputs. I'm not quite ready to call clothing one-time inputs, even though they last a while. For the most part, in an average American house, uh, clothing is a continual input, and we can draw a line from there into clothing, and then from clothing to continual outputs, perhaps once a year you uh, get all your clothes together that you don't want to wear anymore and you donate them or something like that or you turn the ones that can't be donated into rags. So we can go through and really draw lines across this diagram to see all the different ways that we are dependent on fossil fuels. And again, this is the system as it currently exists and as it was built by people before us. And so you shouldn't have a lot of personal guilt about the pre-existence of this condition, but we should use this as a roadmap to see how we can effectively reduce the amount of fossil fuels we use. So this brings us to more of an aspirational chart. So now I'm gonna go through the chart again with a little bit different house. So I just went through a typical American house and now I'm gonna go through the house that, for example, I might aspire to uh, live in at the moment. And this is a, you know, it's a changing moving document and over time we'll, work to reduce the inputs and outputs and make it more of a circular system. So for example, in the one-time inputs category, we have an old house. And then that house, instead of being destroyed and rebuilt, is refurbished because in most cases, it is less ecologically deleterious to refurbish a house rather than tear it down and build a brand new one. We can talk about one-time inputs, um, purchasing all of the tubes and um, equipment that goes into making a solar heating system. And this is going to be one of the major research goals of the Institute this year. Uh, you can check out our blog post. Uh, you can go to the blog and Google solar heating system. Although there are, you know, copper and uh, transportation costs associated with installing the so solar heating system, it drastically reduces the amount of continual inputs from fossil fuels like natural gas, right? So it is seen as a generally a saving, even though it's a more one-time inputs, there's a lot less continual inputs, and so we have to weigh whether or not that's worth it. In this case, I think it is. We might have one-time inputs of rescued wood, right? If we're going to be reshingling our house, then perhaps we'll use wooden shingles from rescued trees. There's an organization in Madison here that uh, cuts down storm-damaged or otherwise trees that would be cut up into mulch and sells them to uh, wood artisans, and you can get rounds and make shingles out of it and shingle your house rather than seeing that wood go to wood chips. Same thing uh, with solar and wind power. Although there is that upfront one-time cost, it drastically reduces the continual inputs over the lifetime of those items. Obviously, we live in a place 
that requires car transportation sometimes, or a lot more time to use public transportation. And so even though a vehicle, a gasoline-powered vehicle at this time, is going to be uh, part of our household, it's something we're going to aspire to not have later on. And we're going to reduce the amount that we use it, maybe work out a carpool system, and double up our trips so that we're doing multiple errands rather than going out for each individual errand. And conversely, we're going to try and increase the amount of bicycling we're doing, right? So these one-time inputs, although we still have a fair number of them, we're working to make them reduce our continual inputs. So under continual inputs, the first one I have is elbow grease. And I think this is a really important one and often overlooked. Things that you can do manually even though it might seem like the less efficient way to do something, in many cases, it might be more efficient. It depends on how you look at it. For example, if I'm digging a trench, sure, I could hire a guy to come out with a bobcat and dig the trench in an afternoon and pay him a hefty sum of money for transporting his bobcat, the, the diesel fuel it uses, and his time, and the upkeep of the equipment. If I were to work out my salary or my hourly wage to dig that same trench, it might be cheaper for me to dig it even better, get some friends over, buy some beer and pizza, and have them dig it with me. There are other ways around some of these external inputs that we feel like we need. There might be a more efficient way to do it with elbow grease. So that is an important continual input. Also, we're going to have to buy foods that we can't grow. We're living in Wisconsin. There are certain foods that we can't grow that we like, um, and so we you know, see, might buy them seasonally. However, if we're buying foods that we can't grow, the best ones to buy are those that are unrefrigerated, that are in bulk because they have less trash that way, and from decent sources. And I mean this both as decent for the produce itself, but also location-wise. If we have a choice between two organic flowers, for example, we could buy the 50-pound bag that's from close by rather than one, the one that's from far away. The point of buying unrefrigerated foods, I should mention, is it's much less costly because you don't have to keep them refrigerated. So obviously we're going to have potable water, um, and that might come from a well or municipal source. Uh, but we can supplement that with collected rainwater, which we can use for watering plants uh, and other non-potable uses if possible. And obviously we can try and reduce the continual input that is gasoline by using our car less, like I mentioned. Um, and, you know, depending on where you live and the state of your car, you might look into buying an electric vehicle, although those certainly have some embedded costs like the battery that comes from, you know, a lot of uh, different places and potentially less than ideal sources. If you have a fairly new energy efficient gasoline car, it doesn't make sense to junk it right now in order to buy an electric vehicle. You might want to wait until it's near the end of its life. Part of reducing the one-time outputs that we have is using things to their full use life rather than getting rid of them when they're no longer a source necessarily of joy. Even if they're just utilitarian and still work, you might want to push through and use that as long as is possible. On the other side of the equation, the one-time outputs... So instead of having the house destroyed, although it certainly will be at some point, if we can push to have the house refurbished and rebuilt, that is certainly a reduction of the one-time outputs. For example, when I lived in Germany, I lived in a house that was from the 1600s. It was older than the United States, and it was perfectly fine. They had hot running water and all the modern amenities, internet, blah, 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 all electricity through the entire house because it had been retrofitted, and it was still a stable wonderful house to live in. Same thing with the car. If we're pushing, if we're using it less, it will extend the life. And if we're pushing through the fashion 
of uh, cars and getting rid of them to get new ones and continuing to use it well beyond what is considered fashionable, that reduces the amount of outputs, as long as it isn't creating an environmental hazard by leaking oil everywhere or whatever. Other more continual outputs are things like trash and recycling, but again, by buying in bulk, by producing a lot of our own food, uh, we're going to be reducing the amount of stuff that we buy, and when we buy it, to be more cognizant of the end use of these things, the trash and the recycling. So one way that uh, this whole system is powered is an interesting one uh, when we go under the central categories of feed. Uh, for example, we have more continuous loops because we use uh, animals and a garden to help grow our food. This reduces our continual inputs of food, but it also makes a circular system where our kitchen scraps get fed to the compost and the chickens, and the chickens create more nutrients for the garden and eggs for us, and the garden takes in that chicken poo and makes and compost and makes food for us, and that creates a further cycle. Um, so everything is a closed loop with water and sun coming in and a circular nutritional system. And as far as housing goes, right, like I said, using uh, wood shingles was one example, but there are other ways that our house would save on continual inputs by having a solar heating system, uh, solar and wind power, and other upfront one-time inputs that reduce the continual inputs and also would make that house more attractive down the road as things get more expensive a house that is largely self-sufficient is going to be a great selling point. Additionally, uh, a gray water system and a composting toilet can contribute from the house back into the feed system rather than contributing to a sewage system. As far as transportation goes, I've mentioned it a couple of times that the reduced use of car, um, and maybe if you have an electric vehicle, you can um, reduce the amount of gasoline you buy, obviously, by using solar and wind power to power your car but also the increased use of bicycle. So it's an overall mindset change, uh, perhaps buying a place closer to your work than you might otherwise. I know that this isn't always possible, and this is kind of pie in the sky and might not be reasonable for everybody to completely change their lives over, but these are different ways that we could think about getting the fossil fuels out of our, our audit. And uh, I'm not going to talk about clothing today because the last podcast was all about clothing, so uh, go back and check that one out. So that's just one way that we can use this auditing idea. Um, there's another audit that I did once of our garden, um, and I did a nutrient cycle where I had uh, in the center of the page, I had chickens, compost, kitchen, the garden, rain barrels, the greenhouse, and then I showed how the nutrients circled through the garden rather than being uh, a one-way street like modern industrial agriculture is where it goes from factory to transportation to field to processing plant, to grocery stores, to our houses, to the waste system, which is one-way street. It doesn't get recaptured. And uh, you, you can use the same sort of auditing to, make, uh, to, to show where the outputs are coming from your, your garden or your food system as well. So there's a lot of different uh, uses of this auditing idea. We use it today to talk about fossil fuels, but you can certainly use it to look at really anything in your life, and it's just kind of a, a neat systematic way to look at it and see where you can improve. So uh, I hope that was fairly interesting and useful for you. Um, you can certainly, uh, if you have a couple sketches of your own uh, use that you'd want to share with us, uh, send them to me um, at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com, and I'll probably feature them on the blog.
This week's DIY feature comes to us from Matt Miles, a contributor and half of the team at Relux Ranch. You can check out his blog at thewayback.com. That's the-way-back.com. Matt sent us two posts this week. The first gives us some introductory information on the scythe, the farming implement most well-known today as the Grim Reaper's Reaper. There may be a scythe renaissance going on as people move away from the gasoline-powered mowers. Some go for electric replacements, others use the 1950s-style mowers, but a few have opted for the scythe, which is better suited to tall grasses such as wheat, but if you pick the right blade, it can even be used to clear weeds and small woody plants. Matt walks us through basic use, from scythe selection and purchase, to sharpening and peening, which is the process by which the user cold hammers the leading edge of the blade to thin it out and repair minor imperfections. So check out Wednesday and Thursday's post for more on the scythe, and keep an eye on the blog for our own scythe posts that we hope to have starting later this year. Now let's take a look at This Week in Low Tech News. Treehugger had a story about clothing labels encouraging users to wash less often and less vigorously, which melds well with last week's podcast on clothing, so check both of those out. They also had another story on a study showing that bicyclists are just as likely to break the law as drivers or pedestrians, but they are perceived as being less lawful because most people make small infractions while driving and walking, so they're quicker to forgive themselves. As a lifelong bicyclist, I've seen plenty of people in cars breaking traffic rules and then yelling at me for perceived traffic infractions. So uh, I certainly can anecdotally support this uh, finding, but obviously uh, you should read the research report and draw your own conclusions. The Arctic winter sea ice has dropped to its lowest recorded level. Sea ice and permafrost, both of which are dwindling, are good long-term indicators of climate change because they take years to change and thus show us a longer running average of change than the day-to-day changes that bring us a mix of winter storms and sunny days, otherwise known as weather. So check out that story. Those are some of the stories we're following in Low Tech News. To see links to the stories we've discussed, send us news tips, and more, visit the Low Tech website, lowtechinstitute.org, or by following the link in our podcast profile. And now for a brief recap of what we have going on around the Institute. It was HR week here at the Institute, and I've been busy getting us in the federal and private grant game. This requires a lot of paperwork and writings, so it's good to get this done now before the spring really hits here in Wisconsin. I hope to have some exciting updates in two or three weeks. Oh, and I've put a new feature on our website. It's a reference library, or at least the beginning of one. In it, you can see hundreds of books, PDFs, and some web resources that can help with everything from food and housing to clothing and transportation, as well as some general references. I'll be adding more. I've got a few hundred PDFs to add yet, so check back from time to time. If you have something you think should be added to the page, please email me to let me know. You can check that out on the main menu of our homepage. That's it this week for the Low Tech Podcast, which is put out by the Low Technology Institute. At the moment, the show is hosted, edited, and distributed by me, Scott Johnson. This episode was recorded at the Low Technology Recording Room. Our intro music was Oh La La, off the album Live at Canal 103 by Maracow. That song is under the Creative Commons Sharealike non-commercial license, and this podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license, meaning you're free to use and share as long as you give us credit. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn Radio, and please give us a rating. It helps boost our audience reach. Speaking of that, if you like our podcast, tell your friends. Tell somebody who might be interested in it, and have them tell somebody. 
You can find out more about the Low Technology Institute at lowtechinstitute.org. You can follow us on Twitter at low underscore techno, and also reach me directly at lowtechinstitute at gmail.com. I'd be happy to have your feedback for the podcast or anything else. Thanks, and take care.